Well, if you have a Bible, you can open it to Revelation 7. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Um, On your tables, there should be pieces of paper that look like this. It's got different Revelation timelines. I made about 70. If we need more, we can make copies. Um, But you might have to look to other tables, pass them around, do what you got to do. I I put like five on each table. So just, you know, be Christians, share with one another. Um, This one is up for grabs. Somebody wants it. Anybody want this? Anybody need this? All right, I'm going to sit it right here. Also, we had a piece of paper that uh, we we had... uh, that looked like this a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, two weeks ago maybe, Structure Revelation. Uh, I've got a bunch of these up here, about 30 of them, so I'll just sit it here. If you want to come get it, like even right now, you're not going to offend me, you can come on up here and get it. If you want to wait till after the service, you can get it then, but they're there. Uh, if you are watching online and you're like, what is this piece of paper? Uh, we already posted the structure of Revelation 1 before, uh, now we have the different Revelation timelines. Go ahead, Sue. Um, the different Revelation timelines, that's new tonight, and that is going to be put in the comment section of the live stream tonight. So you'll be able to get it too. We'll post the PDF there. If you'll recall, we left off last week after looking at the first eight verses of Revelation 7, where we established, whether you agree with me or not, we established for our study that the 144,000 are the people of God. It's all of God's children who, like Abraham, have trusted in God's plan of salvation with faith. And if you remember, before we jumped into chapter 6, I explained that Revelation likes to give us these different ways to describe this event, almost like an instant replay at a sporting event. So um, I I root for uh, Liverpool Football Club. A lot of you probably know that, just I wear the stuff all the time, even had a hat on tonight. And they're not scoring a lot of goals right now, okay? It's a little bit of a tough time. It's a sensitive subject. I'm not ready to talk about it. But they used to score a lot of goals, not in, in the not-too-distant uh, memory. And they would score important goals sometimes, and they would put up social media videos, and they would say, here is Roberto Firmino's goal from Saturday from 29 different angles. And literally, it is three minutes of seeing the same goal, one after another. It's just the same goal from this angle and that angle and the press box and from all over in three minutes of the same goal. And with each angle, you gain an appreciation for the skill, the movement, everything that went into uh, the goal being scored. And so it's similar with Revelation. And the whole book is set up this way, where there's seven different cycles showing us the same thing in seven different ways, showing us the course of the history of redemption, what the conclusion of history will ultimately look like from seven different angles so that we can appreciate it with each different angle, with each different literary device, whether it's the bowl or the trumpet or the tribulation or the millennium, with each different literary device, it stirs up our minds and our hearts to ponder the eternal reward that is coming to the church, the ultimate justice that is coming to the world, and it compels us to be able to persevere and carry on knowing these things are true. So tonight we come to the end of the second cycle, and we get our first glimpses of heavenly life on the new earth in this passage. And in the process, the Lord provides us with future hope. So I'll read starting in chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, 
from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When the lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Verse 9 begins with an after this. It's the same way chapter 7 started, right? Verse 1, after this. Verse 9, after this. It doesn't mean that we have a new event on our hands. Instead, it means John is seeing the same event, the same object, just from a different perspective. And I talked about this last week, but I just want to hit on it again so we understand that this is a rhythm that we've already seen in Revelation. In Revelation 5... One of the elders speaks to John and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So that is what it said. He he hears of a lion, right? And then in Revelation 5, 6, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing. Hears about a lion, but he sees a lamb. Same person, right? It's Jesus, but he's seeing him from two different perspectives. In John 7, 4, John hears the numbered church, the 144,000. I heard the number of the sealed, he says. And then in chapter 7, verse 9 here, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude no one can number. He's not hearing this time, he's looking and he sees the great multitude. So in chapter 5, he hears of a lion, he sees a lamb. In chapter 7, he hears 144,000, he sees a great multitude. Here's how Dennis Johnson explains it. The sealed and numbered army of Israel shows the faithful church on earth, shielded from apostasy and from God's wrath by union with the lamb. The innumerable assembly of nations shows the victorious church in heaven, Emerging triumphant from tribulation, not through a painless rapture, but through a faithful death. So John hears about the numbered church who march along in Christ's mission on the earth, and then he sees the innumerable church, the great multitude you can't even count, victorious, worshiping in heaven. It's the same church from two different perspectives. And when we read here in chapter 7, verse 9, that this multitude that no one can number comes from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, what that tells us is that these are the descendants of Abram. These are the descendants of Abraham in chapter 12. We're seeing the promises of God to Abraham coming true here in Revelation 7. In Genesis 12, which is a cornerstone uh, Old Testament passage, 
It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so there we learn that Abram is going to have a great nation that comes from him, and that his family is going to bless all the families of the earth somehow, okay? Keep going. Genesis 15, the promise is reiterated. God takes Abram outside. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So Abraham is going to have more descendants than you can count, just like the stars in the sky. And then in Genesis 17, the Lord says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So he's going to be the father of many nations. What we're seeing in Revelation 7 are the promises to Abraham coming true by the blood of the Son, Jesus Christ. The multitude that stands before the slain lamb here in chapter 9 have had their redemption bought by that lamb. He has earned their forgiveness by atoning for their sin. He has given them new birth. He has made them children of God. And just like Abraham, they have believed God's promises by faith, and it has been credited to them as righteousness. Specifically, they believe that Jesus is Lord, and they have believed on his life and death for salvation, and they have believed on his name to be the name that all the promises of God find their yes and their amen in. And so by faith, they are saints. Some are Jewish, some are Gentile, but it's not about their blood. It's about their heart. It's about what they believe. They're all Abraham's children by faith, Jew and Gentile. So point number one tonight, if you're taking notes, the great multitude are tribulation saints. The great multitude are tribulation saints. Now, in verse 13 here, John is asked if he knows who the multitude in white robes are and where they have come from. John doesn't know. The elder does. I love that John says, sir, you know. You're asking me. You know. They're Christians. We know that because they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, right, and made them white. They're forgiven people. Their sin has been atoned for. They're Christians who are coming out of the great tribulation. Now, here's where we got to stop. And I'll try to do this whenever we get to these points of divergence. Because again, I recognize that I I would guess like 95% of the folks in this room as we have started this study of Revelation, um, any study you've done before with Revelation has been from the left behind, futurist, dispensational point of view. Until we did this study, you might have been like, brother, I didn't even know there were, were other points of view. I just always thought it was like, you know, thus said, you know, Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye and that's it. Okay. Um. But this is where we do have a divergence tonight, okay, from the idealist perspective and that futurist perspective. So in the dispensational futurist left behind view, timeline goes like this, and you have it in front of you. Christ comes back in part in what is called the rapture, and he takes away the church from the earth. Then seven years of unprecedented tribulation comes upon the earth, and then Jesus returns with the church, 
In this view, the Great Tribulation is viewed as a future event that will, will take place. And in this view, the great multitude are people who came to know Jesus after the church has been raptured away. So the futurist view will not say this is the church uh, uh, you know, fr- from, uh, for throughout the history of redemption. They, they would not say that this is uh, anyone who has put their faith in the Son of God. This is, they would not say this is Old Testament saints and New Testament saints all together, all the children of Abraham by faith. Instead, they would say the church was raptured away and this is just those who came to know Jesus during that seven years where the church is gone. This is not how I understand the term the Great Tribulation, okay? I don't think it refers to a single event in the future. I think instead it's just referring to the way things are during the period in between Jesus' first and second coming. It's not seven years of time in between a half return of Christ and a full return of Christ. It is the entire period of time between the first advent of Jesus, the first coming of Christ, and the second coming of Christ. So then, the great multitude would not be people who came to know Jesus after the church was raptured. It would be the entire church during the church age. They have survived the tribulation of the church age, and now they are being rewarded by standing before the Father and the Son in worship. A couple of reasons I come to this conclusion. A, I just don't see clear teaching in the New Testament that tells us there will be this period of time where the church is taken off of the earth and history continues on. I don't see clear teaching of a distinct seven-year period before the end of history called the Great Tribulation. I also agree with Joel Beakey, who says the entire idea of a great multitude coming out of a seven-year tribulation at the end of history is antithetical to how God is working in the New Testament. If you think about it, from the time of Pentecost on, the Spirit is poured out on the church. And you only see one plan after Jesus ascends to heaven for getting the gospel out to the world. There's one plan, okay? It's not through parachurch organizations. It is not through individual Christians kind of going out, Lone Ranger Christianity, just take the gospel to the ends of the earth, no need to talk to each other, no need to gather up together. Everybody just go out there, charge the gates of hell with your own water pistol, we'll see each other in heaven, right? That's not the plan either. The plan in the New Testament is that the gospel would advance, the kingdom would advance through the local church. That's the plan. Jesus ascends to heaven, and he commissions them. He says, right, you go to Jerusalem, you wait there, the Spirit's going to come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. So they go to Jerusalem, 3,000 people get saved, what do they do? They plant a church, right? You read at the end of Acts 2, they're all getting together, they're sitting under teaching, they're eating meals together, they're looking out for one another. Sounds like a church to me. And then you keep reading, and everywhere they go, they're planting churches. Once Paul hits the scene, that's his whole thing. He just comes into a town, goes to the synagogue, preaches the gospel. A few Jews believe. He says, all right, come with me. Goes over here. Let's start a church. Stay here. Get you up and running for a couple years. All right, Timothy, Titus, whoever, you take charge. I'm going to the next place. Let's go start another one. That's the plan all throughout the New Testament. One plan is to get the gospel to the world through Jesus' spirit-empowered church. So it just doesn't compute with me that God would remove then all local churches from the earth and that the greatest revival that's going to happen in world history would happen on the earth without the local church's spirit-empowered witness. 
to me, it just doesn't fit with the narrative of New Testament Christianity. It's not the way the story goes. And so instead, I would argue the Great Tribulation is not a seven-year period before the world ends, but it is the entire experience of the church as sojourners in exiles. 1 Peter 2, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We have seen from the imagery of the seals in chapter 6 how brutal life is until Jesus comes back. Nations are going to be trying to conquer one another. There's going to be war. There's going to be famine. There's going to be death. And Christians are going to be getting killed for their faith. Right? That's the great tribulation. And it will multiply in difficulty. And so, I know you might be looking at me going, does my pastor not believe in the Great Tribulation? Like, you might be kind of freaking out right now. I do. I just don't think it's seven years. I think it's a couple thousand. And more. Until Jesus comes back. Like, do you all feel like you're living in tribulation? I feel like I'm living in tribulation. And then I can look around at brothers and sisters around the world living in even worse situations than us. I think it's kind of easy for us in America to go, oh, it's going to get worse. Brothers and sisters in China are going, it is worse. We're living it. We're living it every day. Here's Beaky again. The Great Tribulation is not three and a half years of intense persecution yet to come. It refers to the entire journey of God's people between the Red Sea and the Jordan. In other words, the Great Tribulation represents our wilderness wanderings. When Jesus finishes his work and he ascends into heaven, the church is standing there with her back to the Red Sea. The work of rescue is complete. But until Jesus returns, what we're doing is we're steadily moving toward the promised land. Like we just sang, we're moving toward Jordan. We're moving toward heaven. We're pressing on to lay hold of the promises of God. And we are suffering and we are enduring along the way. And if you want to just talk about your life, your great tribulation began the second that you received Christ. Once you were justified and you became a believer, now you suffer with them that you might reign with them one day. One more time from Joel Beakey, he says, It is life from that moment when God intervenes to rescue you from the slavery of sin and Satan and set you on the path of life until the day your earthly life ends. It is life in this world as a Christian. The numberless multitude of Abraham's children are the believers who endured. The judgment of the sixth seal has fallen. They're marked, right? We saw that last week. They're marked. They're sealed. The judgment of Christ as he returns will not fall on them. The cries of the martyrs in chapter 6 is being answered. Justice has been poured out. Judgment has been poured out. The cosmos have melted down. And God's people are now in his presence, worshiping the sun in heaven. And if you endure, you are in this multitude. If you press on and you cling to Jesus and you remain steadfast during these days in the tribulation of the wilderness, then you will be with the numberless throng of the worshipers. These are the tribulation saints. Let's keep going. Number two, the great multitude of the land's victors. First of all, we know that this multitude are victors by the fact that they are standing, right? That was the big question at the end of chapter 6. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We heard of the 144, right? But now we see the great multitude standing in verse 9. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And their redemption and their victory is demonstrated by the white robes that they are wearing. 
We know how the robes are made white. You see it in verse 14. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Usually if you were to take a white garment or any garment and you were to thrust it into some blood, right, it's not going to come out white. But the blood of Jesus is different. The blood of Christ doesn't stain, the blood of Christ cleanses. Hebrews 9 tells us there has to be blood for forgiveness, that if there has been transgression, there must be death. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And Hebrews 9 also tells us that the blood of Christ purifies us. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so this multitude can stand because their sins have been paid for and forgiven. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It's he who has clean hands and a pure heart. This multitude is clean and pure because of the redeeming work of Christ at Calvary. Therefore, they stand. They stand on the victory of the cross. And notice the elder tells John that they watched their robes. Right? They, they took their robes and they plunged them into the blood. They washed their robes, which is a reminder to us that while salvation is God's from beginning to end, you have a real responsibility in your life to repent of your sin and believe. Your neighbors have a real responsibility in their life to repent of their sin and believe. You, you must take your sin-soaked robe and plunge it into the atoning blood of Jesus. And this multitude is filled with people from every tribe and nation who have responded to the gospel, have remained steadfast during the great tribulation of the Christian life. Verse 10 gives another hint at the reality that these are the Lamb's victors. They sing out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The praise is going to God. These saints are not sitting around and patting themselves on the back for enduring tribulation. They're not like, boy, we really got through that, man. Way to go. You are powerful. I believe in you, you know? That's not what they're doing. They're giving the Father and the Son all the credit because they know that without the work of God to save them, they never would have responded to the gospel. They would be dead in judgment under a rubble of mountain rocks, not standing before the throne of their Maker. They never would have been able to endure. So while they had to respond and they had to believe salvation is God's work from eternity to eternity and nobody should be so foolish as to try to encroach on the glory he deserves for his saving acts. And these worshipers are not about to. We've seen some struggles in Revelation. We've seen churches struggling. We've seen nations warring against other nations. People starving, people dying, church suffering and dying. This is how things will be in the tribulation. This is how things will be until Jesus returns. And it can seem impossible to hold on. But we get more motivation for perseverance when we consider the rewards that are reserved for the Lamb's victors. And Revelation shows that to us. It doesn't just say, hey, the world's bad. You know, sorry. Right? It says the world's bad, but there is something much better coming. It's going to get even worse for the world because the judgment of God is going to come down on them. But for the church, there is something so incredible coming, you can't even imagine it. Right? If, if you tried to conjure it up in your own, you'd never come up with how great God's reward is for us. 
We've seen just in the promises to the seven churches that the victors will eat from the tree of life, that they will wear a crown of life, that they will never be touched by the second death, they'll never be touched by hell, they will receive spiritual nourishment and will be known by God, that we will be co-heirs with Christ and rule with him over the nations, that we will wear white garments of purity and our names are written in the book of life. That we will be pillars in the temple, which is a way of telling us we have eternal stability and security in Christ. These are amazing rewards that are being promised to us just in the first, you know, second and third chapters of, of Revelation. Probably the athlete that I would say is most renowned for his work ethic, particularly his work ethic in the face of adversity, would have been Kobe Bryant, the late Kobe Bryant. Whether you like him or not, uh, this term Mamba mentality is important to a lot of athletes. Like it is a serious thing. Like Jason Tatum of the Celtics tattooed a black snake on his leg to remind him of Mamba mentality. And so Kobe handed that down to a lot of other guys. And really that Mamba mentality just means you're the first one there in the gym shooting and you're the last one there in the gym shooting. That you outwork everybody all the time. You out hustle everybody all the time. And so people would ask Kobe when he was alive, he said, Kobe... You know, why do you work so hard? Why are you the first one there? Why are you the last one to leave? And he said, because I want to be better. That was it for Kobe. I want to be a better basketball player. So when I don't feel like getting up in the morning and I am the first one at the gym, I'm there because I'm motivated by being a better basketball player. When I'm the last one to leave and I'd rather go home, but I have to wait out that rookie who's trying to wait me out, but I'm going to wait him out and I'm going to be the last one to leave, I'm doing that because I want to be a better basketball player. That's an earthly accolade. We have something so much better than being the best at something on this earth to motivate us. We have eternal rewards that are placed before us. Eternal life and joyful worship and not living with a fear of death and ruling with Christ and being known by God and being cared for by God forever and having our names in his book of life and a crown of victory on our heads. And so as the great tribulation of this world is bearing down on us with its persecution and disease and ridicule and, and, and suffering, it becomes light momentary affliction when you compare it with the eternal weight of glory that is being held out for us here in this passage and in other passages about heaven. So let's keep going. The multitude are tribulation saints, they are the Lamb's victors, and, and, and lastly, the great multitude are heavenly residents. We're getting a glimpse of the end here. We get a little taste of what the new earth will be like. Not fully. Like, we got to wait till chapter 21 for that, right? Any good story waits to give you all the goods at the end. But we get a little taste. We get a little preview here in this passage. We see the heavenly residents glorying in their eternal reward in these, in these verses. First of all, we see their act of worship in verse 9. They are in their white garments. They're waving palm branches. Maybe conjures up images of Matthew 21. Most of the crowds spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds went before him, and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Palm branches were a symbol of Israel's desire to be delivered and to have someone from the line of David sitting on the throne and to have no foreign power ruling over them. The palm branches are a symbol of independent, autonomous Israel living under the rule of the Messiah with, with no more oppression from foreign powers. Now that's going to come, right? 
But what the Jewish people didn't understand is that they thought the Messiah would come and that the kingdom would be won through military conquest. They didn't know it was going to be won through a sacrificial death. And they didn't realize that the Messiah was coming to deal with something far worse than Caesar. Because something far worse than Caesar was holding God's people hostage, right? Um, Instead, the Messiah came to deal with sin and death and Satan. The fact that these worshipers are holding palm branches signifies that the real deliverance has come. That they are free from sin, and they are free from death, and they are free from Satan. And they're free from any other foreign ruling power that would ever think it could rule over the church. No one will ever threaten the church again. God's people will only live under his rule and his reign forever. Sin, death, foreign powers, Caesar, nobody will pose a threat to the church ever again. In verse 10, you see the church in heaven praising God for salvation. It's a reminder to us that when we get to heaven, we're not going to stop talking about our salvation. We're going to spend eternity tracing the glory and the greatness of God's uh, redeeming grace that he has poured out on us. It's just that we'll get to have all of those conversations without sin polluting it and and sin keeping us looking in a mirror dimly. We'll be able to have those conversations with much more knowledge of who Jesus is and with pure hearts ready to worship him. It's going to be awesome. Those will be sweet conversations in heaven. In verses 11 and 12, the angels and elders and creatures from chapters 4 and 5 are back. So they hear the church praising the Lamb for salvation, praising God for salvation, and they respond to the praise of the church with a doxology of their own. There are seven different doxologies in Revelation, some argue as many as 14, but regardless of the number, they increase in intensity as you go. So uh, in this one, it's very similar to what we saw in chapter 5 where they cried out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The only difference is that in chapter 7, verse 12, the word wealth has been taken out and the word thanksgiving has been put in. And that makes sense, right? They're ramping up the intensity of the doxology because having heard the church praise God for salvation, the angels and the elders and the creatures, they then give thanks to God for his redemption of the church. It's not that God is less wealthy here. He is just as much the owner of all things in chapter 7 as he is in chapter 5. But in light of the context, they're responding to the exclamation of the church as they're recounting their salvation, and they're joining in on that, and they're praising God, and they're offering thanksgiving for his grace. We've covered his conversation with the elder in 13 and 14 pretty extensively. So if you go down to verse 15, we keep getting a picture of heaven. They're before the throne of God in verse 15. To be before the throne of God is just another way to say that you're in heaven or you are on the new earth. It's a way to say you are in the unfiltered, glorious presence of God without the influence of sin to stain it. So they're before his throne and they're serving him in his temple. Which is a little bit odd because when we get to chapter 21, we're going to find out there is no temple in heaven. So chapter 21, verse 22, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. We're not going to go to a place of worship in the new creation. We will ever be before him. We will be ever in his presence. We will meet with him wherever we are. And he will be our temple wherever we are. 
Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So we're going to be worshiping God in heaven, wherever we're at. Don't have to go to a certain place. And part of our worship is going to be serving him day and night. And so this is a reminder to us that you will work in heaven. Work is from before the fall, right? God gave work to Adam and Eve uh, for them to do, particularly Adam for him to do, before the fall came. And so I think a lot of times some people are like, man, I hate work. You know, I can't wait till heaven don't have to work anymore. You're going to have to work, but the, the, the ground's not going to fight back at you anymore. And that's the good news. You're not going to work by the sweat of your brow anymore. It's going to be joyful. You're going to joyfully serve your God day and night. So your work in this age might be done when you die, but the work of your soul is not done. You're going to work for eternity. But again, the pollution of sin will not be present. So your work will be purely worshipful. 100% a pure offering of worship to God 24-7, although 24-7 in heaven, I mean, you know, what's time? But you get me, right? It's going to be non-stop worship of God by serving God. And notice the Lord is actively going to be sheltering us as we worship Him. He is going to be um, a tabernacle over us. In fact, the Greek word there in verse 15 is skenao, which literally means to tabernacle over. So the image here is that instead of God's people going to the tabernacle to worship Him, wherever they are at, they can worship Him. And as we worship, He is spreading out His protection over us like a tabernacle tent, and He is shielding us eternally from any harm and any threat. And so we are worshiping and we are serving, and He is sheltering and sustaining. That's the same thing that's happening now. Right Now as Christians, we're worshiping and we're serving and He is sheltering us and He's sustaining us. But again, when we get to heaven, we get to do this with all sin removed. All death and the threat of death removed. It's going to be perfect as it was always meant to be. There's also a change in their physical status in verse 16. We know that as the seals were broken... We're learning what history would be like. We saw the evils of war and famine and death and martyrdom. But in the new earth, in heaven, God's people will never be hungry again. And God's people will never thirst again. And God's people will not suffer under the elements of the fallen creation. Like sun and like heat. Instead, he's going to provide for every single need that we have. You see that in verse 17. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He's going to be a shepherd over us, a shepherd who takes away our pain, who eternally guides us to springs of living water, who wipes away every tear from our eyes. The lamb being the shepherd is just another reminder that Jesus is God. What, when, you, when you hear the word shepherd, what do you think of? Outside of Jesus being the good shepherd, you, you probably think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Well, what is the shepherd, the, 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 shepherd, uh, the lamb doing in verse 17? He will guide them to springs of living water. The lamb who opens the seals is the divine shepherd of Psalm 23. He's also the predicted shepherd of Ezekiel, 20, uh, Ezekiel 34. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. 
Jesus comes from the line of David. He is the eternal shepherd over his people. He's the good shepherd of John 10 when he says that uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is who Jesus is eternally. He wasn't saying in John 10 that he's just the good shepherd during the age of the church. He is the good shepherd of David's line forever, and he will watch over us, and he will protect us, and he will lead us perfectly for all of eternity. And then in chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for uh, about half an hour. So we get this brief interlude in chapter 7, this interlude of anticipation, showing us the church from these two different angles. The church on earth, the 144,000, church in heaven, the great multitude. Same church from two different angles. But now, finally, we've been waiting, right? The, chapter 6 ended with that sixth seal being broken. We're like, where's the seventh seal? Beginning of chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken, and then there's silence in heaven for 30 minutes. The sixth seal ushered in Christ's return. We know that because it was the day of the Lord, right? The cosmos were melting down under his judgment. So with the seventh seal, what you might expect is that it would show us the new creation, but instead we got that interlude, and we kind of saw the new heaven and the new earth in the interlude. So what's going to happen with the seventh seal? Well, it's just silence. And the silence is meant to stop you dead in your tracks and to go, what's this? Because if you think about it, Revelation is like the loudest book in the Bible. It's so loud. I mean, just from the start of this thing, you got people talking and singing. Jesus' voice is roaring like waters. Uh, martyrs are crying out. There's thunder and lightning around his throne. Creatures are summoning horsemen, right? It's a loud book. Everybody's been talking this whole time. People have been summoning and singing and praising, all sorts of stuff's been going on. You had the people who dwell on the earth crying out for the mountains to fall on them. Everybody's loud, and then there's just, just silence. I, I, I hate to compare it to this, but about the only thing I can compare it to is when I take my kids to Dave and Buster's, and it's just madness for an hour. You walk in there for an hour, it's just like, bing, 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 music, and everything's loud. You don't realize, you walk out of the place, and you're like, what's going on? It's, it's silence, you know? And then we get in the car, and my kid's like, can we turn on music? My wife's like, no one's making noise for the next hour. So, um, that's kind of, I mean, like here, like you don't realize how loud the book has been until the silence hits and you go, oh, this is different. I believe that this silence is a literary device that it, it, it's meant to cause us to uh, have awe, right? It's a, a quietness of awe. Heaven has just seen and heard God's epic plan play out in the six seals, and they respond to his impending judgment and his impending return with worshipful silence. And you say, well, why would they do this? Because it's the command of the prophet. Zechariah 2, be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. It's the calm before the storm. It's only half an hour. It shows that it's very brief. Like that period of time just before a bad storm unleashes on a landscape. And the saints are silent in expectation, excited for what God will do, and in awe of what he has planned. And the people who dwell on the earth are silent in dread, because God's plan represents their end, not their salvation. And I think as we close tonight, we would do well to join with the heavenly beings and the innumerable multitude and just be quiet. I'm not saying you can't talk when we close up here in a second. 
But I would say that it might be a good time to get alone this week as we've wrapped up the first seven chapters and one verse of chapter 8 of Revelation and to consider the epic plan of God to redeem his people and glorify himself. The epic plan of God that we have seen now in two cycles and we have really seen clearly in, in, in the cycle here with the, the six seals. That we would just be in awe. You know, we're noisy people. We like to post on social media. We like to text our friends. We like to vent and get our emotions out. You like to talk to yourself. You know you do it. Don't act like you don't do it. You like to talk to other people. We're a noisy bunch. Sometimes we're not saying a whole lot if we're being honest. We also love noise. We don't just like to be noisy. We like noise. We like music in our ears. And we like podcasts. And we like TV shows. And we like mindless Instagram reels. And we like YouTubers. And we like talking heads on 24-hour news TV. We're constantly taking in information. But what are we really learning? Maybe part of the reason the church in the West struggles to not look like the world so much. Because by the way, when you go to, when you go to other parts of the world, and, and I haven't been to the East. I haven't gone and visited Christians in the East. I've only heard people talk about it and read about it. They don't struggle so much with looking like the world. In, in an environment where they're being persecuted and their lives are on the line, it's, it's a lot easier for them to go, yeah, we don't want any of that. Like We don't want to look like that at all. But in our context, maybe part of the reason the church looks so much like the world is we don't spend enough time with quiet mouths and expecting hearts. We need to be still more. We need to know that he is God. And most of the time, we respond to his grace with deserved praise. But as we consider the future and how he will bring us out of the great tribulation and he will give us victory and we will be his people under his care in heaven forever, maybe we just need to let our words be few. So I don't know if that's in your quiet time tomorrow or your daily worship time tomorrow or that is sometime this weekend or maybe tonight before you go to bed. But in silence and in faith, ponder that the Lord will keep every promise. And rest your heart in it and rejoice that his reward is on the way. We can endure knowing that the prize of being under the care of the shepherd forever It's not far off. It's not far off at all. Let's pray. Father, I know that I talk too much and I listen to people talk too much. And Lord, I pray that I take my own advice. I pray that we would all spend some time, the next 24 to 48 hours, to get alone, to really consider what we've seen in Revelation so far and just sit in awe of who you are. To sit in awe of the one who is seated on the throne, who holds the scroll of history in his hand. To sit in awe of the slain lamb who alone is worthy to take that scroll and to open it. The lamb who will return. The lamb who will judge the world in righteousness. The lamb who will redeem his sealed church. The lamb who will strengthen his church and see his church through tribulation. The lamb who will bring his church through the other side and will reward her. Lord, I pray that we would spend more time in worshipful silence before you, meditating on your word, thinking about who you are, and not talking, just taking it in. And then when our hearts can take it no more, we'll exclaim in praise and start the whole process over again. But I pray, God, that we will get quiet 
I pray that we will find some solitude and we will truly consider your epic plan and give you the glory that you deserve. But I also pray, God, that we would be loud. I pray that, that uh, we would take this story of the gospel that we have seen already in Revelation and we would take it to this world because we know that the rocks, um, that the people will cry out for the rocks to fall on them because they fear your judgment. We know that those who dwell on the earth are in great danger, Lord. Their souls are in peril, and so let us tell. Let us go and tell and fulfill the commission. And Lord, I pray we would do that as the local church and we would do it as individuals. But connecting the two, Father, I think we'll be better evangelists if we spend that time in solitude and all of who you are. And so I pray it would be both. And I pray, Father, that um, you be glorified through this local church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.